I know that we've already prayed for God's blessing upon the Word, but I was taught long before I came here that there were certain passages of the Scriptures that you ought to come with great trepidation and great reverence for what is about to be read. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me once more and pray for God's blessing on the Word. Merciful God, as we have just sang, it was for our salvation that Christ came. And the miracle of the Incarnation is that perfect God gave Himself for us. Father, be with us as we read this great word from the Apostle Paul. And show us Christ. Show us the humility of His incarnation and the glory of His exaltation that we might love Him more and serve Him as we ought. Bless us in this, we pray, not because we are worthy or perfect, but despite our sinfulness, because of Your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we turn this evening to Philippians 2, verses 1-11, through and then afterwards we will turn in our Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 14, which is also in your bulletin, but can also be found on page 215 in the Forms and Prayers. Let's give our attention first to the reading of God's Word from Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us now turn to the summary of God's Word, Lord's Day 14. Again, can be found in your bulletin and then on page 215 in the forms and prayer. Question 35. What does it mean that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary? 
that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to Himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature, so that He might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin. Question 36. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and in God's sight, He covers with His innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Blessed congregation, the prophet Isaiah once mocked King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, by personifying him in Isaiah 14. He said of Nebuchadnezzar, you said in your heart, listen to the language here, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make Myself like the Most High. In this chapter, the prophet says, you desire to go up. You desire to be exalted. You desire to be like God. He even in this chapter, compares him to Lucifer. Because didn't Satan tempt Adam and Eve in the garden saying, ye shall be gods? He speaks of the sin of pride. Which is one of the greatest sins men and women face. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we desire to go up. To go up in life. To be exalted. To be the best in our field. To be the best looking. It's a constant struggle in the life of a human. One of the first sins. But how did God respond to Satan's pride? How did God respond to the pride of Adam and Eve? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. God's response to human pride is the humility of Christ. While man and Satan say, we will go up We will go up. We will go up. Christ says, I will go down. Even to the cross. Paul in Philippians 2 gives an explanation of the descent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who goes from the highest, most exalted place 
and the entire universe to the cross to rescue prideful sinners like us. This is the passage about the humility of Christ. Having dealt with in our Heidelberg Catechism the names and the titles of Jesus in Lord's Day 11, 12, and 13, the Apostle, or excuse me, the instructor now gives us a teaching about what we call the humiliation of Jesus Christ. That in his incarnation, life, death, and burial, Christ was humiliated. Going from that highest and exalted state to the lowly state of being born of a Virgin Mary. And so we are in that section which deals with God's grace and our salvations from sins. But now we come to the state of Christ as He came to save us. That is the condition He came in when He came to earth. Which was one of humility. A humble state. I want us to see three points in our time together this evening. The pre-existence of Christ. Then the humility of Christ. And then the perfect holiness of Christ. That's the pre-existence of Christ. The humility of Christ. And the perfect holiness of Christ. We see at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2 that the Apostle Paul is holding up Christ as an example to the church. We look at those first five verses where he says, complete, beginning in verse 2, my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What is he saying here? He goes on in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. If you jump to verse 5, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He is prescribing for them the humility of Christ, that they are to be humble like Christ was. Remember that the Apostle Paul was the founding pastor of the Philippian church. We read about this in Acts 16 when Luke records the conversion of two charter families who would go on to help with the establishing of this church. The conversion of Lydia, Acts 16, 11-15, and then the, conclu- the conversion of the Philippian jailer, verses 25-34. through And we are told that as Paul is writing this letter, he says in chapter 1, verse 7, verse 13 and verse 14, that he is writing this letter to the Philippian church from prison. And the occasion is that if you flip to verse, or excuse me, 4, verse 18, is that a man named Epaphroditus has brought to Paul a gift from the church. But he's also received a report. And friends, the report was not good. The report was that the church is no longer unified, that there was divisive preaching. There was disunity in the body, and there was a tiff, a fight between two women so problematic 
that they go down in history of Paul telling them in chapter 4, verse 2, Judea and Syntyche, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. Disunity is a real problem, my friends. Paul will say in this book, disunity is a threat to the Gospel ministry. It's a threat to the unity of the church. It's a threat to our relationship with one another. Disunity is a threat to our Gospel witness. We know this is true. When do sinners come to salvation? When do churches thrive? When there is disunity in the body. Jesus is right when He says a house divided cannot stand. So the Apostle Paul, in seeing this problem of disunity, does what every good pastor must do. He points them to Christ. He points their eyes to Christ. But rather than pointing them to the cross, we see beginning in verse 5, or excuse me, verse 6, He points them to the pre-incarnate Christ. Incarnation means to take on flesh. God becoming man. Paul says in verse 6, He was in the form of God. Now the word form, or in the Greek, morphe, has caused a lot of Confusion, since when we hear the English word form, it seems to uh, give us the idea of reflecting something that's external. Our outward appearance. And this has led some people to conclude that Christ, well, He really only outwardly looked like God. But if this was what the Apostle Paul meant to convey, there were other words that he could have used that would have been better words. But instead, the Apostle Paul uses the word form because, and I quote, it expresses the way in which a thing, being what it is in itself, and how it appears to our senses. Now, I recognize that's very technical. In understandable terms, what we're saying here when we use the word form is that it truly expresses the reality of that person. For example, in Mark 16, there's a story of two men walking on the road. And Christ, after His resurrection, He appears to these two men. And it says, after these things, He appeared to them after the crucifixion in another form, Morphe, to two of them as they were walking in the country, even though His outward appearance was not visible to them, was hidden from them, it was still the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the Apostle Paul saying in Philippians 2? He's saying Jesus Christ in the form of God that in His deepest being What He is in Himself is the essential nature and character of God. He was God even before His incarnation. 
That Jesus is the Prince of Heaven. The One whom angels worship. He is the One through whom all things were made. The One who upholds the universe. He is, as the Catechism says, and remains true and eternal God. And this is why Philippians 2 is so astounding. The Apostle Paul says to us, look at his humility. In the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Grasped can literally mean robbery. The thought of the Apostle Paul here is that even though Christ is equal to the Father, even though He had all of the privilege and all of the power and all of the glory, He didn't use any of it to exalt Himself. Instead, what does Paul tell us in verse 5? He had an attitude of humility. Back in Lord's Day 5, we are told, if you flip back to Lord's Day 5, that we need a mediator, it says in verse question 15, who is a true and a righteous man. But Paul unfolds this just a little bit more. Not only is the mediator we need just God or just a man, but that we need a God of humility who would give Himself selflessly for others. Congregation is the application of Christ's preexistence not clear. If Christ is preexistent God, that means He possesses all of the majesty of deity. He is adored by the Father Worshipped by the angels, invulnerable to pain, frustration, and embarrassment. His supremacy is total. His satisfaction is complete. He, his blessedness is perfect by virtue of who He is. And yet even still, Paul says, He is humble and willing to be reconciled to us. If He is all of these things, should not Judea and Syntyche humble themselves and be reconciled as well? Likewise, we congregation are called to follow Christ in this way. We are called to humble ourselves. Called to serve one another. If you look at... Philippians 4, verse 2. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, Eudea, you're wrong. Be reconciled. He doesn't take anyone's side. He says that they are to agree in the Lord. Sometimes it's not about who's right or who's wrong. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, if He could serve us who were clearly in the wrong, then we can be called to serve one another. The Apostle Paul uses the pre-existence of Christ and applies it to our lives. Humble yourselves and serve one another. 
Not only that, but then the Apostle Paul then looks at the human nature of Christ. That though He sat at the right hand of God, He had access and power. Look at this. Christ willingly abdicated His position to become one of us. He became fully human. He became subject to the trauma of childhood. To the rejection of of men, to the mockery of His peers, to the confusion of puberty. Fully man, Paul says, He emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant. That is, that the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. Catechism speaks of this in question 35. That He took to Himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a true human nature. And Paul vividly illustrates this by saying in verse 7, He emptied Himself. Or as the King James Version I think adequately puts it, he made himself no reputation, or the, as the NIV says, he made himself nothing. The million dollar question is this What does it mean that Christ emptied himself? There are some people who suggest that when he emptied himself, that means that he emptied himself of his deity and only became just a man. There are others who teach that He emptied Himself of the attributes of deity while remaining God. But if you look at this passage, how does the Apostle Paul say that He emptied Himself? Not by subtracting His deity, but look at what it says, by adding, by taking the form of a servant. The emptying of Himself. Christ's emptying is not by subtraction of His person but in the addition of taking on human flesh. That by becoming genuinely human, He made Himself with no reputation. He forgoes the glory that He is due and demonstrates remarkable humility. So allow me this evening to be very clear what Christ assumes. It's what Christ assumes that humbles Him not the changing of His deity. Now I remember when I was a kid raised in the church being taught that Jesus is both God and man. Thinking, well, how can He be God and a man? Surely He's not a man like me. Surely He had some divine aspects to His person. What does it mean that He's a man? Yet the teaching of the Bible is indeed that He is born in the likeness of man, that He took on every aspect of our humanity. See, the Scriptures teach that yes, Christ is divine, but He had a real human body. 
He was born, Luke 2. He grew in statue, stature excuse me, before men, Luke 5. He hungered and thirsted, John 19. He wept, John 11. He bled, John 19. And others, when they looked at Him, they saw a man, Mark 6. He had a true human body, but He also had a true human mind. He grew in wisdom, Luke 2. He learned obedience, Hebrews 5. He lived within the constraints of being human, even confessing there was things that He did not know, Mark 13. He had human emotions and a soul. We're told in John 12 that when He thought of the cross, He was troubled. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. Hebrews 5 tells us that he cried out to God in anguish of soul. He's a man. Truly a man. The man of sorrows, even. Grieved and fearful. Who prays and weeps. He is amazed and yet he hopes and trusts. But the lowest part of his emptying we are told, is in the cross. The Apostle goes on in verse 8. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Donald MacLeod, a theologian, writes these words, the cross is the ultimate vanity and futility. Here the life becomes dead. The eternal Word is reduced to silence. The career of the Son of Man runs into sand, is disgraced, discredited, and meaningless. This is the final act of His emptying. And this is why this passage is so sobering. And we need to come with trepidation. Because the subject of death, Paul says in verse 8, the One who dies is God the Son. That when Jesus chose to become incarnate, to wrap Himself In human flesh, He chose death. Even though as God, He is immune to death. But becoming mortal, He embraces death in His human nature. The Scriptures have Very strong words for the proud. God opposes the proud. The reason that there is no place for pride before the Lord is because Christ was humbled even to the point of dying upon the cross. He is the only one who could have been proud who is worthy of, or excuse me, not worthy, but who is worthy of all worship and adoration, who could be proud about what He has accomplished and what He's done. By virtue of who He is, 
he could have been proud. And no one could object to this. But he chose humility as the better virtue. So my friends, reach out to the person who bothers you. Pray for the pride of your own heart that it would be replaced with humility. Make amends with the estranged family member or friend. The implications of this passage are clear. If Christ is willing to humble Himself and be reconciled with us in the strength of His love, can we not follow His example? The Apostle uh, who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, also looked at the incarnation of Christ and said it's a great assurance for us. That since Christ is truly human, since He knows our weakness, He then knows the temptation of our sins, therefore He is a sympathetic Savior. Remember what He says in Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are and is yet without sin. Let us then draw with confidence near to the throne of grace. In Christ's incarnation, we do not have need to fear Him then. He knows that we are weak. He knows our struggles with vanity. He knows the temptations of lust and fear and anxiety. And rather than being moved to judgment, we are told that He is moved to compassion for our sakes. His humanity has moved Him to compassion. Christ doesn't finish His discussion on the humanity of Christ or excuse me, Paul doesn't finish his discussion on the humanity of Christ simply with his death. But notice what kind of death he mentions. It's a death on the cross. You, of course, know that the cross was a cursed death. Not only because it involved indescribable physical pain, but because it represents the curse of our sins. Moses says in Deuteronomy 21 that if a man committed a crime punishable by death, he is to be put to death and you hang him on a tree for a hanged man is cursed by God. The brutality of the cross, the trial of the cross was not only the nails, not only the whips, not only the crown of thorns, but that Christ died a death without hope. A cursed death. McLeod again puts it this way. He died a death with the sting. A death without light. Without comfort. Without encouragement. He would cry and not be heard. He would lose the sense of divine sonship losing all senses of the Father's love. That when God gathered our sins and put them on the flesh of His Son and condemned it, it was the darkest moment of human history. 
where the sins of all who ever believed were placed upon Christ and God judged Him for our sake. But the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, this is the hope that in the darkest hour of God's judgment upon Christ for our sins, the hope is this, that He did it for us. There is a silent spiritual blessing for us in Christ's conception and birth. While He was not conceived, question 36, in sins, we were. The Catechism reminds us of David's famous words in Psalm 51. We were brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Every human being is a sinner except Christ. He is like his brothers in all things, yet sin. But here is the hope. He was conceived and born without sin. He lived a perfect life without sin so that he might die on the cross and forgive sinners of all sins. That on the cross... He would pay the penalty and give the church the perfect holiness of Christ. So that when we stand before the Father on that last day, we will stand in Him complete, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The Apostle rejoices this evening. This is why Christ came. This is why He left heaven. This is the purpose of His incarnation that He might save sinners. Of course, He doesn't stop at the cross. Christ will not be humiliated forever. That He was forsaken, buried, and then on the third day He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and He will return to judge as the glorious and exalted Savior of this world. And God has bestowed upon Him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says his humiliation was for a time. His humiliation was for a purpose. But it wasn't forever. And the purpose of his humiliation was to justify you and all who would ever believe and confess his name. We'll consider the Savior's exaltation in Lord's Day 17 through 19. But what we need to see this evening is remember that the miracle of the incarnation is that God was made man. He lived a perfect life. He died a cursed death so that He could justify you. And a final thought before we conclude. As we see in those last few verses that every knee will bow whether you bow willingly or whether your knee is forced to the ground, all will bow. 
my friends, do not wait until that last day when you'll be forced to bow and confess His Lordship. Submit to Him today. Today is the day of salvation. Acknowledge Him as Lord today so that your heart will be filled with joy at His appearing. Not dread. Congregation, He has come. That's the miracle of the Incarnation. God has come and has endured the deepest of hell, the worst of our sins. But He has paid it all on the cross so that we can be justified before His sight. Hallelujah and Amen. Let us pray. Merciful God, we do give You thanks for the gift of Your Son who in His humiliation came to earth who gave His life for our sake, was born of the Virgin Mary, taking on human flesh, and took the punishment that we were due. We thank You for Him, our Lord and our King. Pray, merciful God, that You would bless our hearts this evening in light of His glory and wonder. That we would see Him in all of His beauty, and that we might bow the knee to Him this day and confess Him as Lord. Soften our hearts, Heavenly Father, to do this work. We pray by the power of Your Spirit all these things in Christ's name. Amen.